0: Well, let me begin by admitting that I don't think it's going to be easy to figure out exactly what Jesus wants us to get out of this parable of the rich man and Lazarus. Or any of the parables, really. The word parable is a notoriously difficult word to define. It means a lot of things. But one of the best definitions of a biblical parable is riddle. Parables are riddle. There's some puzzle to be probed. Some enigma to be plumbed. And right when you think you've got it, a trap door opens and you fall down to a deeper level of puzzlement. By the way, I think insufficient attention is given to the fact that we serve a Lord whose favorite method of teaching was not rule or law or principle, but riddle. The writer of the Gospel of Mark says he never said anything except in riddles. I think that bothered his disciples, frankly. We are told that one day Jesus had been teaching and preaching to the crowd, one parable after another, one riddle after another, and when he was done, his disciples pulled him aside and said, Why did you do that? Why did you talk to them in riddles? As if to say, if you've got something to say to them, why don't you just say it? The humorist Calvin Trillin once said that he failed high school math because his teacher never understood that he meant his answers ironically. (laughs) Well, so did Jesus, evidently, because he never said anything except in riddles. The great New Testament scholar C.H. Dodd once came up with a wonderful definition of a parable. He said, a parable is a metaphor or simile drawn from everyday life The meaning of which is sufficiently in doubt to tease the imagination into faithful thought. Sufficiently in doubt. But even in the strange world of parables, this parable is particularly odd. You see, most of the parables are about things that we know something about. A a farmer sows seed in a field. A woman mixes yeast with flour to make bread. A young man says to his father, I'm sick of this farm. Give me my share of the inheritance. I'm going to the city to make a life for myself. Well, we understand that. That's life. That's human life. In fact, one of the most popular definitions of parable is it's an earthly story, a very earthly story with a heavenly meaning. Well, not this one. In fact, most of the action in this parable takes place not in this world, but the next world. In fact, you might even say instead of being an earthly story with a heavenly meaning, this one's a heavenly story with a... or actually a hellish story with an earthly meaning. Most of the dialogue comes from the bowels of Hades. What happens in this parable is that there is a rich man. We don't know his name. But we know how he lives. He wears designer clothing, and he eats whatever he wants to every day. Right at his gate, right at his door, there is a beggar named Lazarus, a man so poor and hungry, he would love to have pawed through the hefty garbage bags that go out the back door of the rich man's house every day. But no. There is no sign that the rich man ever noticed him, attended to him, cared for him. They live only a few feet apart. But they're in different worlds. But as is so often the case in parables, there is a sudden reversal. The poor man, Lazarus, dies and is taken by the angels to the bosom of Abraham right next to the heart of God. The rich man also dies. He ends up in torment in Hades, and in Hades he looks up and sees Lazarus in Abraham's bosom, and he cries out, Father Abraham, please have mercy on me. Send Lazarus here with water to cool my tongue. I'm in agony in these flames. But Father Abraham says, Oh no, my child. In life, you've had good things, and what is more, a chasm, a great chasm has been fixed between us. You can't come to us, and those of us who would love to come to you, we cannot. It's too late. It's too late. What do you think Jesus wants us to get out of that riddle? Well, a good many New Testament scholars say this story fits beautifully into a major theme in the Gospel of Luke, namely that in the struggle between the haves and the have-nots, between the rich and the poor, God is not neutral. God stands on the side of the weak and the poor. And it's true. If you read through the Gospel of Luke, there is more material in Luke's Gospel on economic justice than almost anywhere else in the Scripture. In fact, sometimes you get a little militant feel from Luke. It's almost as if every time he uses the word rich, he snorts. Rich. At the beginning of Luke's Gospel, when the angel comes to the peasant girl Mary and tells her her she's going to be the mother of the Christ child, she breaks into song. We call it the Magnificat, but it is not a gentle mother's lullaby. It is a political protest song. My soul magnifies the Lord. Why? Because God has brought the proud and mighty down from their thrones and lifted up the weak and the lowly. The hungry God is filled with good things, and the rich God is sent empty away. Right before our parable, Jesus has an argument with the local clergy. He says to them, you know what's wrong with you ministers? You think you can serve two gods, God and mammon, God and money, God and the prosperity gospel. Well, you can't. They both want your soul. So choose. Maybe our story is the tragic tale of a man who made the wrong choice. If that's what Jesus wants us to get out of this riddle, I tell you, there is something about that interpretation that I find deeply satisfying. You know, when I think about the greedy people in our culture who brought our economy almost to its knees, I think about my own neighbors, some of them losing their houses, their mortgages. Or, or when I read the news story about the professional athlete in Philadelphia who owes the city of Philadelphia thousands of dollars in unpaid parking fines because he parks his luxury cars wherever he wants to. One of the tickets is for parking his Rolls Royce at Philadelphia Airport for two weeks in a handicap slot. And if I think that this story is about people like that appearing before the bar of God's justice and hearing the voice of God say, all right, Buster, you've had all the good things in life you're ever going to have, there's something in me that says, hey, yeah. There are only two things that keep me from stopping there. The first is the chill of recognition. Look, I don't think of myself as a rich person. I'm a preacher and a teacher, and believe me, I am paid accordingly. But if you pull the camera back and look at me in relationship to the population of the earth, I'm at the top of a pyramid. As the parable says, I wear nice clothes every day, and I eat pretty much whatever I want. Whatever this story has to say to the rich, it has to say to me. The other thing that keeps me from stopping there, though, is that Jesus doesn't stop there. Luke doesn't stop there. No sooner has Jesus told this story than he gets back out on the road to the cross. And it takes him very soon through the town of Jericho, and in Jericho he encounters an honest-to-God rich man. His name is Zacchaeus, and he is a bureaucrat for the Roman IRS. Or as Luke puts it, He's the chief tax collector, and he was rich. When Zacchaeus climbs up into a sycamore tree to see Jesus go by, Jesus stops underneath the tree, looks up, and he does not say, All right, Buster, you've had all the good things in life you're ever going to have. What he says is, Come on down, Zacchaeus. I'm staying at your house today. And before that day is over, Zacchaeus is jumping for justice and joy. And Jesus is saying, "Today salvation has come even to this house. And in language very much like our story, this man too is in the bosom of Abraham. The trap door opens. Is this about wealth and poverty? Yes. But something deeper. I think the clue to it comes in what Father Abraham said. Oh, my child. That's not the voice of an angry judge. That's the voice of a heartbroken parent. Oh, my child, a great chasm has been fixed between us. Those of us who want to come to you, we can't. It's too late. I think this is about what might be called the penultimate theology of the gospel, the next-to-last theology of the gospel. The ultimate theology of the gospel is that it's never too late. The banquet of grace is always waiting. The prodigal can always come home. It's never too late. But that would be cheap grace if it were not for the penultimate theology of the gospel, which is that every now and then in our lives a window opens and there is the presence of God available to us. The chance to be a part of what God is doing in the world right there. And it's too late. It's too late. When Jesus in the Gospel of Luke came into Jerusalem to die, He wept over the city, only in Luke. And the reason he weeps, you did not know the time of your visitation. You missed it. You missed it. The Pulitzer Prize-winning author Tracy Kidder wrote a book called Old Friends. It's about a New England nursing home. He spent a year living in that New England nursing home doing research for the book And in the book, he says, there are a lot of people in this home who are plagued by the loss of memory. But there is one man here who is plagued by the inability to lose memory. His name is Art. And he's just lost his wife of 60 years. And he's tormented by memories of failure in their marriage. When they were newlyweds, she accidentally dropped the frying pan and he cursed her. If I could have her back. She could drop a hundred frying pans. I wouldn't say a thing. He remembers an argument that went on all 60 years of their marriage. She wanted him to tell her more that he loved her. I don't like to talk about it. I just like to show it. I know, sweetheart, but sometimes I need to hear it. I don't like to talk about it. That ain't my way. The last week of her life, she went into a coma, and he sat beside her bed saying over and over, I love you. I love you, I love you. She never said anything back, she never forgave me. I would have liked that, he said. The day she died, he was in the room watching television. Look, the Red Sox are losing again. I would have liked it if she had died in my arms. Some of us know about this very personally. I can't believe, I cannot believe when I was a young father that I actually got on that airplane and flew somewhere to give a speech to people who no longer remember me or what I said than going to the father-daughter campfire girl banquet that my little girl Melanie asked me to go to with her. I can't believe I did that. Now that I'm older and wiser, I know I made the wrong decision, and I am now ready to go to the father-daughter campfire girl banquet. To which Melanie would say, oh, Daddy, it's too late. I'm not that little girl anymore who needed her father that night. You missed it. You missed it. When Jesus was a boy, I think he heard a lot of sermons about this. It was a favorite theme of the rabbis in the synagogue, to preach about how life would open up with the possibility of God right there. In fact, they even had their favorite sermon illustrations about this. They were called Eliezer of Damascus stories. (laughs) Who's who's Eliezer of Damascus? He's this obscure biblical character mentioned only once in the book of Genesis. He's Abraham's kinsman and right-hand man. But the rabbis would tell stories about how Abraham would send Eliezer to earth as a sign of God's blessing and mercy. But Eliezer would always be incognito. He was the goatherd or the tailor. You had to keep your eyes open to see Eliezer. By the way, you translate Eleazar into Greek. It's Lazarus. Right there. The blessing of God in the form of a beggar. The rich man needed Lazarus a lot more than Lazarus needed the rich man. And he missed it. I can promise you this. Sometime soon, somewhere, right before you, life will open up with the possibility of God. The possibility of being a part of what God is doing in the world. Don't let your wealth or your pride or your numbness let you miss it. Don't miss it. Don't miss it.